Exactly one year ago, The Verge posted an article simply titled, Welcome to Hell, Elon. (laughs) In it, editor-in-chief Nilay Patel outlines the mess that Elon Musk bought when he bought Twitter. Patel also argues that Musk's personal relationship with the platform he now owns might make it a bigger mess than it already was. The piece is incisive and cutting. And while perhaps not an unexpected perspective, Patel offers a piercing analysis of the many contradictions in Musk's stated goals, vision, and guiding principles for the platform. There's one part of Patel's analysis, though, that really stood out to me. Here's how he put it in conversation with Offline's John Favreau. The thesis of the piece is that the product a social network makes is content moderation. And if you don't recognize that early, you're always going to be chasing after flashy features, filters, or whatever, instead of realizing that the user experience that somebody opening your app is having is totally determined by a series of decisions you make that incentivize some content and disincentivize some other content. Social network CEOs are not in control of their apps. The users are in control of those apps. All they can do is align some incentives to get the things they want to have happen, happen. That's content moderation. It's straight up. That is the design of the product is content moderation. We don't think about it that way because when we talk about content moderation, we think about taking stuff down or hate speech or whatever. But it is as much recommending content or incentivizing creators or all this other stuff that fills in the boxes of the app. I've thought a lot about social media from the supply side over the last few years. I've considered what standards I want to set for myself in the way I create and share on platforms. I've dug into the weird labor relations that exist between creators and platforms. And I've thought about the emotional and hermeneutic labor that's required to manage niche platforms like private communities. Now, I've spent less time thinking about the demand side of social media, largely because I think there's a lot of agreement that what we see and experience sucks. I also wonder how much of the current social media sphere is really what's in demand and how much of it is just an addicting way to hoover up data that can be reconfigured and resold. In other words, how do we even think about demand in a market that's consciously manipulating our attention and desires for profit? Now, for all that thinking, I hadn't considered what Patel argues is the essential truth that the product of every social media company is content moderation. On the surface, we might think of their product as the code that builds the user interface, or we might think of it as the advertising system. We might, if we're trying really hard, think of the product as the complex web of property rights that creates the vector these companies profit from. But I think Patel is right. Any way you slice it, the product depends on people paying attention. And to get people to pay attention, their feeds have to be full of stuff that, on some level, they want to see. Or, at the very least, their feeds have to be absent of the kind of stuff that makes people close the app. For this, and for many other reasons... I believe content and community moderation is one of the most vital and 
most undervalued skills of the 21st century economy. You're listening to Strange New Work, a special series from What Works that uses speculative fiction to explore bold new worlds of work now and in the future. I'm your host, Tara McMullen. In this penultimate episode of Strange New Work, I want to take a close look at the skill of moderation, its role in our evolving tech futures, and the politics that complicate this essential work. But first, let's start with a fiction that feels a little bit more real than reality. Neil Stevenson is a futurist and speculative fiction writer who crafts prescient tales about how technology impacts our lives. In his 2019 book, Fall, or Dodge in Hell, he imagines an uncanny future America in which the nation is functionally divided in two. In the parts of the map that light up blue on election night, the United States continues on more or less how we know it today. One reviewer referred to these areas as truth-based communities. But rural areas, and most of the middle of the country, are known as Ameristan. In Ameristan, the rule of law breaks down such that social order is directed by militaristic, reactionary Christian groups. The culprit? Misinformation. In Stevenson's imagining, the internet becomes a fully immersive information environment. It's content, or specifically who sees what, that divides society. And who sees what is largely a product of class. Honestly, it's not really that different from our current reality. It's just turned up to 11. Reading back through the passages that describe the divided American reality... I couldn't help but see the specter of inevitability in the corner of my eye. In Stevenson's Future America, the way people deal with the flood of misinformation, disinformation, obscenity, and violence that gushes through networks is with the help of professional editors. Instead of relying on a feed provided by an individual platform, People buy into different sorts of moderation schemes to get access to the flume of content they want and to avoid the flume of content they don't want. Here's how Stevenson describes the situation. Direct, unfiltered exposure to said flumes, the torrent of porn, propaganda, and death threats, 99.9% of which were algorithmically generated and never actually seen by human eyes, was relegated to a combination of AIs and third-world eyeball farms, which was to say huge warehouses in hot places where people sat on benches or milled around gazing at stuff that the AIs had been unable to classify. They were the informational equivalent of the wretches who clambered around mountainous garbage dumps in Delhi or Manila looking for rags. Anything that made it past them, any rag that they pulled out of the garbage pile, began working its way up the editorial hierarchy, and in rare cases, actually got looked at by the kinds of editors, or more likely their junior associates, who worked for people like Sophia. 
Consequently, Sophia almost never had to look at outright garbage. Now, that editorial hierarchy, well, buying in towards the top is expensive. The very, very wealthy hire their own private editors who not only sift through the flume of incoming content, but also curate the outgoing data that their clients create simply by going about their days. The vast majority of people either chip in to hire an editor for a small group or resort to buying a subscription to a feed that's curated to a particular set of interests, politics, and worldview. The editor you hire or the feed you subscribe to has a huge influence over what you believe is true. One of Stevenson's characters mentions how his family suffered because of bad editing. There's a whole subtree of cousins who went off the rails because they went in together on a bad editor who ended up mainlining Bilo-Russian propaganda into their feeds. We lost a whole branch of the family, basically. So my mom, in particular, is super sensitive about this. In Stevenson's future, truth, privacy, and a modicum of psychological safety don't come cheap. Now, whether you realize it or not, we already live in an information ecosystem that's dominated by editors. The high-end ones, of course, still have jobs at the New York Times, CNN, and Last Week Tonight. We actually call them editors, and their job is to decide what gets written up, commented on, and shared with those who opt in to read their content. And to my knowledge, editors like these haven't made the leap to working directly for the ultra-wealthy. But please, if you've got a tip on someone who does, let me know. Our social media feeds also have teams of paid editors. In this case, Stevenson wasn't speculating. These paid editors often do work in third-world eyeball farms. How is it that your Instagram or TikTok feed isn't full of vile garbage? You might assume that it's the mythic algorithm. There is some combination of code and artificial intelligence that keeps the bad stuff away from the baby pictures, webinar announcements, and funny cat videos that you ostensibly want to see. And that is true, to an extent. But it is certainly not the whole truth. Jeff Bezos has called the people who do this work artificial, artificial intelligence. A dehumanizing title for dehumanizing work. In his book on the subject of labor under platform capitalism, Philip Jones writes, quote, platforms outsource their labor to keep it off the books and hidden from users, investors, and customers to appear more technologically sophisticated than they are. Many of the people doing this work are refugees. Nonprofits and NGOs set up ramshackle offices full of computers right inside the refugee camps themselves. Cramped and airless workspaces, describes Jones, festooned with a jumble of cables and loose wires, are the built antithesis to the near-celestial campuses where the new masters of the universe reside. 
The refugees and other micro-workers who flag obscene content, label images to train AI, and do other small digital tasks make literal pennies, while founders and venture capitalists generate millions from their labor. Researcher Sarah T. Roberts, who studies commercial content moderation, told Harvard Business Review that that's just how the tech companies like it. Quote, the companies favor this kind of relationship. It sets up a convenient kind of plausible deniability for some of the harms that come from the work. Here's Roberts explaining further on the Canadian program, The Agenda. It's a hidden practice, and that's why you've never heard of it. Uh, It's something that isn't uh, pleasant to talk about. And so the workers who do content moderation are typically shielded from view. They're globally dispersed. You can find them all over the world, from Silicon Valley to the Philippines to working online on sites like Amazon's Mechanical Turk. And they're largely faceless and invisible. And we need them because why? Well, as one worker put it to me, without their cleaning of internet sites, the ones you mentioned and many others, uh, the internet for most users would be a cesspool, that's the term he used. The workers that I talked to certainly indicate that it took a toll on them. I think there are two ways it can go. Some workers came into the job and were unable to stomach the nature of the work, even though they knew something about it beforehand and they'd gone through training and they just chose to leave the position. Those who stayed on, who did this work day in and day out, actually were finding themselves somewhat inured to the content that they were seeing. Desensitized after a while. That's right, which in and of itself is is a frightening outcome. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, the workers that I spoke to really had a sense of responsibility and and almost altruism around the the work that they do, Uh, a sense that I'll take this on so that you don't have to. I'll take this on to make this uh, space usable for other people. The thing is, is that they receive very little acknowledgement or credit for the work they do. They certainly don't have any specialized training, and the pay is very, very low. Um, The workers that I talked to who were in... Of course, the organizations that set up these workspaces promise opportunities, tech training, and fair pay. Preemptive love, an organization with a mission to end war and disrupt the cycle of violence, claims on their website that... Jobs are the most powerful weapon against war. In a 2019 blog post on the site, Ben Irwin touted microwork specifically as an antidote to the cycle of violence in Iraq. For centuries, the overdeveloped world in the global north has extracted wealth from underdeveloped communities in the global south. We've exploited their mines, their farms, and their forests. We've used their wealth to accumulate our own. With natural resources becoming ever more depleted, we're now pillaging their human resources. Every hour someone spends on micro-tasks is an hour not spent building the economy in their own communities. They're not negotiating supply chains that benefit their region. They're not working together to get everyone fed. They're not repairing homes or building new ones. Instead, Their time is cannibalized by the prospect of waged work, and their minds are colonized by our digital garbage. But don't these people need jobs? Maybe. Or maybe our idea of a job, work that's done for cash compensation, and its position as an economic necessity is a product of capitalist realism, 
What if we stopped interfering and simply asked people what they need to facilitate community-led labor and needs meeting systems? Our constant push to get people into something that, to us, looks like a job, fuels rather than disrupts the cycle of poverty. What's more, in the United States, we've made a big deal about avoiding sweatshop labor. Liberals and progressives buy quote-unquote ethically made clothing, housewares, and skincare. Brands leverage their commitment to fair labor practices as a way of attracting business. But we ignore the ways we directly benefit from digital sweatshop labor every time we open our favorite social media app. That said, there's been murmuring about a trend toward private or niche communities for years— And I've done my own fair share of this murmuring. But today, I am much more cautious about how I talk about private or niche communities. And the reason is because so little care is often given to moderation as the core product of the community. In many ways, these small communities and social networks, especially the for-profit ones, are driven by the same logic and reproduce the same labor relations that large commercial social networks do. Sarah Roberts, the commercial content moderation researcher I mentioned earlier, cites Reddit with its user-moderated subreddits as a counterexample. She points to how successful subreddits have community leader moderators and clear rules for engagement. Redditors know what the policies and expectations are of each subreddit they belong to. By joining a subreddit, the Redditor opts in to following those rules or risks getting their posts taken down or being removed from the group. Reddit has contributed like hardly anything in terms of moderating tools, in terms of like crowd control. That's Shanna Mann. She's the founder and former moderator of the Ask Women Over 30 subreddit that boasted between 60 and 70,000 members before she left. But, like, that's really would be nothing without the the huge corpus of actual communities there Mm -hmm. and the value that they drive. In April... After Reddit announced it would begin charging for access to its API, many moderators led a blackout that effectively shut down their communities. This shed some light on how valuable, or not, Reddit thought their moderators were. Right now, the narrative on certain parts of Reddit is basically that mods are power-hungry. Like, you would be doing this so that you could wield the banhammer and smite anyone who dare oppose you. And uh, it's just not... It's not that much fun. I mean, it's like you ever go around your house after uh, you had all the windows open with a fly swatter. Like, by the time you got three flies, you're just pissed off about it. So there's now a a bit of a slur to call them jannies, janitors. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Like, you guys didn't really value the work done by moderators. And so it's one thing to sort of take your janitors for granted because you don't see them, their work's invisible, like you'll really only notice when they're not doing a good job, but to just basically thumb your nose at the work that's done to make the communities so vibrant. At issue were apps that moderators relied on to make their responsibilities easier, as well as a suite of apps that improved accessibility for users. 
Now, while Reddit caved to public pressure to exempt accessibility-focused apps, the moderator tools apps had to shut down. The ridiculousness of taking away the moderator tools when the whole point of all these third-party apps was because they failed so miserably in providing anything of substance for so many years. Part of the moderator-led blackout included labeling subreddits as not safe for work so that Reddit couldn't monetize their pages. Others completely blocked access or switched them to read only. And one delightfully subversive subreddit protested by allowing only images of John Oliver. Back in June, after Reddit announced a new policy to charge third-party apps for accessing its data, many of its members engaged in a striking protest. Some of the biggest forums on Reddit are being flooded with photos of comedian John Oliver. This is all taking place over a protest to changes on how the website's being run. Two of the most popular so-called subreddits have decided to post nothing but photos of Oliver. It's true. For weeks, images of me were used as a form of protest on some of the most popular subreddits. It was a pretty inspiring act of malicious compliance. But just watch. As, trying to as the protest wore on, Reddit executives got antsy. They started to threaten protesting moderators who didn't reinstate their subreddits with the prospect of being expelled and replaced with volunteers who would side with the company. Now, these weren't idle threats, it turned out. Moderators were, in fact, expelled. And they were replaced by new moderators with questionable experience and expertise. Some moderators that had been purged by Reddit told Ars Technica that they feared moderators without proper vetting could actually jeopardize Redditor safety. The former mods of R. Canning worried that bad advice would lead someone to succumbing to botulism poisoning, for example. And a researcher at Cornell pointed to the loss of institutional knowledge that occurs when a whole group of experienced users is replaced by a whole group of inexperienced users. So while Reddit might be a good example of how moderators create spaces online with clear rules and patterns of management, Reddit itself doesn't seem to view their contributions as particularly valuable. Which, I have to say, is ludicrous. In the backlash over the shakeups at both Reddit and Twitter, a different class of social media started to make waves, called federated social media, these platforms are decentralized, relying on distinct instances of their networks managed by individuals or groups. Think Mastodon and Lemmy. All of those, they're supposed to be independent, but they've fixed one ill and replaced it with a different. So like, they're not centrally, you know, centrally planned, and so there's no oversight. But that also means that, like, for every good community, you have bad community, you know, and there's no way to, you know, to do anything about that. But, like, in the same way that there used to be good blogs and bad blogs, like, I think that there's still that way, you know, that we can, that way that we can go, which is just basically reputationally. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the the beauty of Reddit was really that it was, like, one-stop shop and such, uh, it was like being in a grand bazaar, like, all, mm-hmm. everything you could imagine under the sun was there. Now, what you get in federated social media depends on what iteration or server you're on. It's sort of like how what state you live in determines what access you have to programs or even how your civil rights are upheld. For example, in Oregon, 
The minimum wage is over $12, and tipped employees must earn at least that amount plus whatever tips they receive. But here in Pennsylvania, the minimum wage is still $7.25 per hour, and tipped employees only earn $2.85 per hour (gasps) plus tips. And sure, we have considerably more mobility online than we do geographically, But anyone who spent years building up a presence within one community or on one network feels rooted to that space in much the same way you do when you've lived somewhere for years. Okay, so what about private communities? There is a lot of good that happens in private or niche communities. But when things go wrong, it can be devastating in a different way. I ran a paid community of one sort or another for more than a decade. And to say I learned a lot about moderation and community management in that time is a severe understatement. By the time I was burned out and deeply depressed, the most valuable and salient lesson I had learned is that a community survives or thrives based on how leaders invest in its structure. I'd learn to constantly ask the question, as Rosie Sherry asks it, how can the way that we structure and set the groundwork for our community impact the type of conversations that take place and how they're moderated? The problem all online communities face today, whether they're Facebook groups, Discord servers, circles, or Mighty Networks, is working against the totalizing structure of the social web. Every moderator and community manager is caught between a rock and a hard place. They're trying to coax lurkers out from the shadows to spark engagement, even when those lurkers might be hiding because they've learned to fear online discourse. And at the same time, moderators are trying to manage the speech of those who are perhaps too eager to jump into a conversation without context. We are all living in the internet reality that social media has created. Another problem that most online communities face is the lack of investment in people who are willing or capable of working in this weird and at times legitimately traumatizing milieu. I made a decision early to hire a full-time employee to manage and moderate the business owner community I ran. When I made that hire, my business was very profitable and the investment felt really doable. But as the business shifted from its highly profitable training and education model to the decidedly less profitable community model, that investment felt entirely necessary, critical even, while being a huge mental and financial weight. The community itself never generated the revenue needed to cover our two modest full-time salaries. I was always augmenting the community revenue with higher-priced offers to float our payroll. As I've observed other paid communities over the years, I rarely see that type of investment being made. Not only are there seldom full-time community managers for a product that may cost anywhere from $25 to $300 per month, But there is seldom an investment in the operational and philosophical structure of the community. 
Sure, their values, their policies. However, they just don't have the mechanisms required to translate them into the daily experience of users. To some extent, all for-profit paid communities run on the same logic that Facebook and Twitter do. Users create the content for free so that the owners can cover costs and enjoy the profit. I can imagine a scenario in which this is ethical by virtue of the fact that well-managed private paid communities really can deliver outsized value to their members. The problem is that, like Facebook and Twitter, owners try to keep the costs associated with the community as low as possible. And in that, their reliance on free labor is also exploitative. Because platforms like Facebook and Twitter have made moderation hidden work that we wave away as a product of the algorithm or some secret AI sauce, we also disregard the labor of moderators and community managers. It ends up being volunteer labor, or it's folded into the duties of an under-resourced virtual assistant. Again, the idea that anybody can do that work without the proper training, compensation, and mental health support is something we inherit from social media platforms. These are interesting times on the social web. Most of us agree the whole thing sucks. It's damaging our mental health, physical health, civil society, culture, and relationships. It's not providing real business benefits. But we also don't know how to extricate ourselves from it. I think we're living in times much closer to what Neil Stevenson imagined than we'd like to be. Stevenson described how he's come to see the internet and its near future as a sort of doomsday machine. He pointed to the way that social media systems are explicitly designed not to have humans in the loop because, well, humans aren't scalable, which then means that those models can't be profitable. And I don't disagree. But I do wonder whether Stevenson knew about the humans who were caught in the loop. He seems to have known. He called them third world eyeball farms, remember? And so perhaps missing from his response to PC Mag is humans caught in the gears of the machines, the ones stuck in the loop with no hope for rest or satisfaction. And I don't mean to criticize Stevenson for this response. I simply want to point out how easy it is to write off this labor as cheap magic. He went on to tell PC Mag that the only way to get good content out of the internet is by having humans in the loop. But unfortunately, he says, humans are expensive. Continuing, if you did want a curated, edited stream, you would have to pay for it. Moderation, community management, editing, as Stevenson dubs it, these are some of the most valuable skills of the 21st century economy. They are literally creating billion-dollar companies. But no one seems willing to pay for them. We want the results without the costs. We want the labor without the laborers. If we want good content, let alone feeds that don't rot from the inside with myths or disinformation, it's going to be expensive. But unlike in Stevenson's dystopian vision, that cost 
doesn't have to be a matter of class and privilege. We don't have to settle for an internet that works for the rich but further divides the poor. We can share the costs. This isn't the internet we have today. It's not the business model that internet companies are built on. But that doesn't mean that the next generation of companies can't be built on something that truly values the human touch. If we want a better internet, it's going to need a better business model. One that works for everyone instead of a few billionaires. Huge thanks to Shanna Mann for sharing her experience as a Reddit moderator with me for this episode. And huge thanks to Briar Harvey, who you didn't hear from, for sharing her moderator experience with me as well. I'll be sharing more from both in a future episode. Next week, we'll wrap up Strange New Work with an episode all about transforming our work from the power over paradigm to the power with paradigm. Stay tuned. What Works is a reader and listener-supported media venture. Premium subscribers help make deep-dive analysis about work, leadership, business, and economics sustainable. If you love What Works and you have the means, I'd love to have your support too. For just $7 per month, you'll get access to premium content and quarterly live workshops. Go to whatworks.fyi to learn more. That's whatworks.fyi. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form on Substack. Go to whatworks.fyi to find this week's essay, plus a whole archive of in-depth reporting and analysis on the future of work. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutenaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.